Welcome to the Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions podcast, bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you discover amazing music and artists from around the world. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. Maeve Gilchrist thrives on innovation and improvisation what she fondly calls my musical patchwork quilt. Steeped from an early age in both classical and traditional music, Edinburgh-born Maeve Gilchrist discovered jazz in her late teens, which she pursued at Berklee School of Music in Boston, where she also studied voice, percussion, and Latin American music. She subsequently became Berklee's first lever harp instructor. Maeve has stretched the traditional boundaries of the harp and has become accredited as an innovator of the Clarsich, the Scottish harp, due to her chromatic style of playing and improvising. Maeve has toured regularly with her own projects and has given workshops worldwide. Performance highlights include the Tanglewood Jazz Festival, the World Harp Congress, and the Celtic Connections Festival. Maeve has collaborated with numerous artists, including dancers Nick Garris and Colin Dunn, as well as Victor Krauss, Esperanza Spaulding, Tony Triska, Solis, and the Boston Conservatory Orchestra, just to name a few. She's a member of the Silk Road Ensemble and is also an in-demand composer and arranger. She has numerous CDs out, as well as several instructional books published by Hal Leonard Music. So how are you? It's good seeing you. Hi, Maureen. It's so Hi. good to see another human at this weird, slightly uh, bleak time. But you and I were both saying how wonderful it is for us to be in the Hudson Valley, where at least we're getting to see spring unfold so beautifully. Absolutely. Yeah, we can see the river from our house, too, which is it's so beautiful. So, so thankful for that. Oh, I, did, I just got a bird hanger that I've been hanging outside the kitchen window and I have a book of um on birds and I've been sitting with my breakfast coffee identifying them as they come to eat and it's just yeah when life slows down this much it's really for me at least uh, someone who's constantly on the road it's a real opportunity to take notice of the little things happening around oh yeah I've been picking up books that I've been neglecting and little projects that I've been kind of putting aside and so I'm grateful for that Have you ever wanted to learn how to play the harp or find out more about the instrument? Well, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the Somerset Folk Harp Festival. The festival will take place online, so no matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to take workshops and listen to the concerts, meet the harp makers, and find out more about the harpists from around the world. Celtic, jazz, classical, electric harp, Paraguayan harp, and more. So check out the festival at somersetharpfest.com. That's Somerset, S-O-M-E-R-S-E-T. Hope to see you there. Part of this, so these interviews are a series that I'm doing on my podcast that are focusing on artists and like luthiers at Somerset, at the Somerset Folk Harp Festival. So this year is a 20th anniversary. So I wanted to ask 
questions about, you know, um, your history with the festival and your whole take on the community feel of the festival? I believe this will be my 10th year at Somerset. I started um, going to Somerset as uh, Kathy employed me as one of the kind of new faces in 2009, just after I graduated from the Berkeley of College, uh, the Berkeley College of Music. And um, so it was one of my first professional engagements as a harpist. And uh, Somerset has really nurtured me as a professional from right after my graduation through now, uh, 10, uh, 10 years on. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing for Somerset that they'll have got all sides of May Gilchrist <laughs> in this 10 year span, but it's certainly been wonderful for me. And I'm very grateful for Somerset for having faith enough to hire me at that age and to continue and be open to the new things that I've been excited about bringing and just giving me a platform as, uh, as I evolve as a musician and a teacher. And um, also the opportunity to teach uh, in a festival like Somerset is very unique. Um, large classes, mixed audience or, or, or mixed participant level. And I think that's one of uh, the wonderful things about Somerset is it's very welcoming in its atmosphere. Everybody is welcome, regardless of whether they've picked up a harp or been playing a harp for decades and decades. Um, and as a teacher, and um, that's been a really uh, uh, powerful experience of having to create a class environment where people coming from multiple levels can take away something. Um, Working with such mixed levels classes has been so informing as a teacher. And um, and actually, when I started doing these online web workshops called Harp Talk about three years ago, I was really drawing on my experience that, that, I, that I, I had gotten at Somerset over all these years of having large classes of mixed levels and trying to structure the class so that everyone could leave and take away something. I really feel like if you can have a practice which is covering the fundamentals in a way that's building technique and uh, general musicality, why wouldn't you also want to incorporate creativity into that practice? For sure, the biggest gift that I can give as a teacher is the gift of encouraging the student to utilize their own imagination in creating a practice regime that's perfect for them. Because nobody knows our playing better than we know our playing. And so often people are reliant on a book or an arrangement or some kind of step-by-step -step method um, in order to feel like they're doing it right or, or practicing correctly or evolving the way that they should. Um, when really uh, like the biggest leaps that I've made in my own development as a musician are those aha moments I've had without a teacher by myself. And, and they're in moments of honesty when I've been at one with my playing and realized weaknesses and had to think really about how I can, how I can tackle those challenges and, and create a practice regime for myself um, that focuses it focuses on those things. So in my in my book of uh, hand separation etudes and rhythmic exercises, I created that collection really because I think it's very difficult for people to incorporate the idea of rhythm into their practice as an abstract strand of musicality. Um, it's not an arrangement, the notes aren't written down. It's really, it's a combination of like, of math and imagination 
and discipline. Um, so when I created this book, it wasn't, a, it's not a step-by-step -step guide towards becoming a more rhythmic player. It's really supposed to spark some kind of um, uh, fire in the students so that they can use their own imagination and some of the tools that I give them in the book to create their own rhythmic practice. And I think that's really important because I feel like bettering our sense of rhythm and strengthening our rhythmic core um, can uh, elevate our playing like nothing else can. And it's also applicable to all levels of players across the board. Music to me is not dots and lines and a page. Uh, this music is so alive and it's so full of shape and dimension. And um, so also as a teacher, it's so important for me to um, share to my student how I envision them creating these shapes and breathing life into the music and because it's all about the music it's not about me or them it's about how we can together bring this music to life through our vehicle of the heart. It's just so inspiring because sometimes I, I think um, just from my practicing sometimes I get so caught up on you know matching up with the metronome or just like getting through a, a tune or a fast you know passage or and then I forget about the whole nuance and and the the whole why yeah right it's like why are we doing this and and I think it's it's for the sake of beauty like everything should be to create something more beautiful and beauty is subjective there's no one shape or form that that comes in um but it's I it, not to start to get too lofty but um it by 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 teaching everything and by playing everything with this ideal of creating something beautiful, it doesn't just answer the question of why in the music. It For me, it answers the question of why am I doing this at all? Why is there music? It's such a deep question. And if even the most beginner musician or, or the most beginner harp player can start their journey with the harp, with this answer to why it will bring them places they'd never dream of otherwise. I was just listening to a really wonderful podcast actually with um I listened to On Being with Krista Tippett a lot. Oh, sure, yeah. And I was just listening to her interview with the great poet and philosopher John O'Donoghue. And um and he said it so simply and beautifully. He said art is beauty. Mm. And um and I found it so validating as a musician. And I also just love love this idea of creating a pool of beauty that we can draw on when like like now when times are bleak and um and I think every student picking up any instrument can start to do that for themselves if they attack their practice in the right way yeah and that's so encouraging to them as well and I think like Tom Waits actually said like music is I think he said like jewelry for the brain like for the mm. inside the mind you know um and it's I think it's so important and people are really turning to music now you know, in, in these times, they're turning to the arts and music, and that's really what brings us together in so many ways. And to open up that exploration to your students is so encouraging, instead of saying, no, you can't touch your instrument until you're sitting a certain way, or you're, you know, it, <laughs> it kind of makes it like a, you know, you're, you don't become one with your instrument. To It should be an extension of yeah. yourself in a lot of ways, I think. Totally. So, but that actually, you're reminding me of... Um, one of my questions I had to you about poetry and um, literature and how that translates over to music. First of all, just to address this idea of words and music, 
in my mind, they're so linked together, um, uh, partly because of the tradition that I come from. Uh, narrative poetry songs are as much a part of the tradition as the jigs and the reels and the music, and they're um, completely uh, woven together and one wouldn't exist without the other. Um, my father is a great writer and he really passed on his love of words and poetry to me and and I, I don't really write myself but I I I do love words. I, I they have a profound impact on the way I think and feel, particularly poetry. Um I'm not a churchgoer but I, I, I find so much um solace in poetry and words and um so it seems a really natural step for me to bring that into my music. Um, the piece you're talking about was a commission from the Edinburgh International Heart Festival about two or three years ago now. Um, uh, it was a piece to be written for Mr. McFall's chamber, which are a great string group. Uh, in this case, we reduced them to a quartet based in Scotland. Um, so it was from Mr. McFall's chamber and uh, myself. And then I, and I, utilized samples of um of Jack McGowan reading um part of this uh, wonderful monologue from the Beckett novel what and um though the it's a wonderful book and this monologue is particularly striking um in its musicality Beckett's such a musical writer um a lot of repetition and rhythm to his words that I find directly inspiring melodically and texturally. Um, and that passage particularly spoke to me um, when read by Jack McGowan, who has this rich gravelly voice, which seems to be coming up out of the earth and, and through his mouth. So it's a three part piece, um, very interwoven with this idea of the cycle of the year and what I think of as the tiny sounds of the earth, which are actually is something I've been thinking about, about now as spring unfolds it and I'm here to witness it. These tiny little sounds that we don't hear in our human world, but are happening all of around, all around us. The, you know, the, the, the breaking of the first crocus coming out of the earth for spring or the sound of a leaf, the last leaf and winter falling off the, the, the tree. I, I love the idea of exploring what I imagine some of these tiny sounds to be. Um, more recently, I've been recording a record called The Heart Weaver, um, which is mixed and about to get mastered, oh, great. which is very exciting. We're kind of postponing the release of it because of, uh, for obvious reasons, with the virus. But that was another really interesting experience for me where actually I I always had the idea of utilizing this poem and um, the Ballad of the Heart Weaver is by Edna St. Vincent Millay who was a wonderful American female poet the first female American poet to win the Pulitzer Prize in fact and I came to her writing through the work of Elizabeth Bishop and um, of whom I'm a big fan and Millay was a, a mentor of bishops and um, and when I came across that poem I, I, I really wasn't familiar with Malay's work. I just, I was kind of tickled by the idea of this poem being called The Ballad of the Heart Weaver. And I was about to embark on a solo tour in New Zealand last year, kind of my first solo tour really. And I was thinking about trying to find some kind of thread, some kind of non-heart thread that I could weave through the performance um, as a 
solo artists and constantly trying to think of ways to keep the audience's ears engaged. I, I think regardless of how beautifully one plays a harp after an hour, it is just more harp, <laughs> even if we're exploring textures and everything. And I just love the idea of hearing Malay's own voice reading throughout mm. this hour. Um, so that happened. And as I spent more time with the poem and with writing this music, it, the music was by no means a direct kind of reflection of the narrative of the poem. The poem is actually quite bleak. It's about a mother and her son and their dirt poor. And the mother is just trying to support her son and she sells everything in the house. And the only thing she can't sell is the harp with a woman's head. And um, eventually, kind of as a last resort, she turns to the harp and she starts to weave from the strings clothes to keep her son warm. Uh, and she, she dies in the process. So it could be looked on as, as this tragedy, but actually when I read it, I was so struck by the beauty of the idea of the instrument providing from the player, uh, providing for the player, sorry. I feel like often as musicians, as like highly technically qualified artists, we spend a lot of time thinking about kind of wrangling the sound from the instrument. Like, how do we get this sound from the instrument? How do we like master this passage? And there just seems something deeply unempathetic about that way of approaching an instrument. And, um, and I feel like when I look at my favorite musicians, the people who move me the most, they're the ones who seem to just they're not wrangling anything from the instrument. The notes just seem to trickle out of the instrument like water. It's like they're a conduit between the instrument and the world. And I I love that approach. And actually in, in my teaching as well, I, I feel like it's so important to try and um, cultivate an effortlessness, even in a beginner student, which can sound... Uh, really patronizing I think for someone who's working their butt off to achieve something and here's the teacher saying make it sound easy when it's not easy we know it's not easy but I think having this idea of something at the end of the arc of work um, that the result being something that just is flies on its own I think that's so beautiful and um and ultimately very liberating and allows the instrument to speak um, more than the, the voice of the player getting in the way. And I just thought that this uh, poem reflected that beautifully. And, um, and the more time I spent with the poem and then I, I was making this recording and I, I did it with a wonderful string quartet called the Yazuri String Quartet. And we were exploring textures and Throughout the whole process, I'm reading this poem, I'm listening to her reading this poem. We've got the rights to utilize her, her own voice reading it. And it's this wonderful, old-fashioned, kind of transportive, mid-Atlantic mm. accent. You know, that was popular back in the, in the 40s or, or, or the 50s. And, um, and I got much closer to her writing than I was at the beginning. Um, and I saw, like, as I started to read her other poems, the thing about Malay is she, she, she was really a rock star in her time. And on first reading, I feel like her work can feel almost superficial. It's very easy to read. It's charming. It's quite quaint language. But the more I knew about her and her life and the more I read this, I, I just started to uh, understand all these deeper layers. And, uh, and I became absolutely fascinated with her. 
so in January, I done the first kind of segment of um, of recording, and after that was done, and I was feeling so grateful to the musicians I was working with, and just so thrilled with the the sound. Because sometimes when you embark on these projects, you get this idea in your head, and it never quite manifests. But I, I really, I really felt like the vibe of this whole project was being um, was manifesting so beautifully. And I got an email from the head of the Edna St. Vincent Millay board. I'd kind of written to him a couple of times. And it turns out that her house in Austerlitz, New York, which is usually boarded up for the season, was having some kind of event. And he was going to be there that week, just kind of dusting off the property, making sure everything was in place. And he invited me up. So I drove up and it was starting to snow that day, I remember. And I, I, I don't have like the proper tires or anything. And I remember halfway up the road thinking should I really be out here doing this and I turned off the road to head to Steepletop the, the house where she uh, lived towards the end of her life and the roads were so muddy and the snow was coming down and I was thinking oh this is a dreadful idea I'm by myself I've got no cell reception uh, and then I came onto her house and um, the head of the board Mark gave me this wonderful tour of her house and I uh, it was so special being the only one there and he showed me her shoes he got me into her private music room where I got to see the manuscript that she'd written she was an amateur composer as well and um, he showed me uh, her private drawers where all of her leather gloves were and her lipstick I got to smell her lipstick that sounds creepy oh, wow. no no but it was cool yeah. uh, her kitchen was so, so what was amazing is when she passed away her sister and her sister's husband moved into the house but they were clearly in awe of Malay and they left everything as it was, living around it for decades. Wow. So it's this perfect museum of her life. And, um, I, you know, perhaps it was just like the magic of the moment and the snow coming down. But I, I, I felt so close to her. And um, uh, I, I love birds. I, I love watching the birds in my bird feeder and, um, and the bird feeder outside Malay's window and um the director showed me this bit of footage where she's sitting in her bedroom and um she has bird feet on her hand and they open the windows and the birds fly in and feed from her hand and she too loved the small birds and she loved to live life there seemed to be nothing precious about the way she owned her artistry um it was a really special feeling and when i came out of the house the snow had stopped and the Heavens had cleared and I drove home as the sun was setting this glorious evening. And even though I'm sure she would have scoffed at the idea of needing her blessing to create a project, I really left that house feeling like I had I had gotten her um blessing. And now and and now as I'm kind of finishing up that project, uh my, my whole experience with it has been elevated, having had that um visit to her home. That's so beautiful. That story is just so gorgeous. I, I can't imagine a more beautiful day. It really was a beautiful day. And it felt like every step, like, like when I did the Beckett piece, I was a huge fan of Beckett beforehand. So I, I went into it with this reverence. With, with the Malay piece, it really it just kind of feels like that poem found me. And she's kind of been holding my hand through the whole process. And um, yeah, and I feel closer to it now, certainly, than I did at the beginning. It's also the music of that project is very informed by my love of old music hall melodies and this idea of nostalgia. And that's also been really interesting 
being immersed in that music at this time when we're all so separated from one another and and I'm separated from my family and even though you know no one's really separated nowadays we've got zoom and facetime and um but but it's given me a lot to think about and having this um feeling this closeness to Malay and the Heart Weaver project has been so um, nourishing and it's been a real comfort to me for sure at this time. Just the whole power of language and the breath and, um, you know, and I love that you did go to her house and that um, something as personal as lipstick, you know, that's, I think I, I probably would have, you know, been in awe of that as well because it's something so... Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a piece of jewelry too. Like if you have a piece of jewelry from a loved one, it's it's probably the most personal thing that you can have. And lipstick, what's more personal than than that? Yeah, it it feels like kind of beautifully mundane, doesn't it? Is it's it's so everyday. You take your lipstick out of your bag, or um, yeah, it felt it felt very special to see that. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I mean, I know you're talking about different like artists. Like I know in one article I read that you uh, were interviewed, you mentioned like Nina Simone. And when I think of her, it's, it's almost like that whole idea of um, when people talk about having a garden and, and like, do the plants really care about me? And you're like, well, mm. it's a mutual kind of um, benefit relationship. So the plants need you and you need the plants. It's like you need yes. your instrument and the instrument needs you. The instrument wants you to, you know, let it sing. You know. Yeah, totally. You know, I, and when I think about artists like Nina Simone or you mentioned Tom Waits, Joni Mitchell, um, I mean, there, there, there's so many also like current artists, some of my favorite traditional musicians, Martin Hayes, Frankie Gavin. When I listen to these people, I always hear the music, or let me put it a different way. I'm not hearing their instrument as much as I'm hearing the essence of them as a musician. And um, to me as a listener, that's always been the most important thing. I want to hear a vibe. I want to be transported by someone's sound. It doesn't matter what they're playing or, or, or they're singing. Um, and so as a musician and as a composer the the older I get it becomes even more important to create a vibe and to use that as um a target that I'm constantly referring back to um is this in service of that feeling that I want the person to feel when they listen to my music I was actually wondering if you were influenced at all by Alice Coltrane and her jazz harp or um at all I love her music. I love her piano playing too. And um, I know, I know, like a lot of jazz harpists are are, are very influenced by Alice Coltrane. And um, I, I would say I'm, I love her music. I, I think her her harp playing I've enjoyed primarily in kind of a textural way, which I think it was intended. Um, and it certainly kind of helped create this ethereal, um, spiritual aesthetic her music which she was clearly cultivating I, I love her piano playing a lot as well um yeah but that's a great example of yeah I love her musicianship it almost doesn't matter that she played the harp or the piano you know that she created something that was so uniquely hers you know with your singing too I mean it's it's just like you're it's a gift of yourself that you're giving 
the audience as well. So it's, I think for a lot of people, it's so, um, they get very shy about it because it's sort of mm -hmm. like, um, you have nothing to hide behind. It's all you. But, oh, God, tell me about it. It's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you and it's all, you know, your instrument. So it's, um, it's just that other form of expression. But then the harp can bring that out too in different ways. Um, but I think, I think what I, I love, like, uh, I mean, there's so many things about your music that I love. Um, I think one of the things I really love is how you collaborate with unexpected um, musicians and percussionists. And, you know, uh, when you were working with uh, your the dancer on this, uh, the sand collector. The, the sand hunter. Sand hunter. Yes. Yeah. Very close. Yeah. The, Nick Garris. Yes. He's a wonderful artist. Yeah, he's a he's um for those listening who don't know him, he's a percussive dancer from Michigan. He always jokes the the, the culturally rich percussive dance homeland of Michigan, <laughs> USA. Um, but he's a really unique um mover in that he's drawing on inspiration from a number of different percussive dance traditions. He's very familiar with a lot of Appalachian clogging styles. He studied um Irish dance, Chinos dance, and also tap dance and um but he really utilizes his body as an instrument and working with him. And actually, I work with two dancers regularly. I work with Nick Garris. I, I feel like the, the luckiest harp player in the world to get to work with my two favorite dancers in the world, Nick Garris. And then Colin Dunn, who's a, who's a wonderful, um, uh, well-known for his work with river dance. But he left river dance and got really into contemporary dance. And he's now just doing incredibly fresh things uh utilizing elements of irish dance um but uh I, I feel so spoiled working with them both and with both i have a completely different working relationship so working with nick garris from michigan um working with nick is like working with uh, another musician like he is very familiar with the vocabulary of musicians he is a musician he's a great bazooki player and singer and um we we kind of arrange in the same way I would if I was sitting with a guitar player. We'll both learn the melody. We'll choose whether we want to be at the forefront or in the more supportive role of the melody. Sometimes we'll we'll consciously choose to play juxtaposing textures to create some noise, um, and then we'll come together to create a more cohesive effect. So, so as we work out these arrangements, we're really playing with textural contrast and sound. Working with Colin. Um, I feel like it's it's a much more abstract approach. It, it, it's like um, it's like we're both dancing around the beat, but it's much more improvised based, I guess uh, I would say. And um, and it doesn't necessarily matter if we come together at a point or not. It's like it's, it's like we're uh, artistically courting each other from a distance and just circling in that way, and that can be very beautiful as well. When I work with Nick, I I. I've often had this image where I feel like I'm playing these notes and these notes are like little bubbles coming off my harp and the bubbles form the shape of a human man and that's Nick and he's there <laughs> facing me. He, he's like the, the living, moving embodiment of the notes that I'm playing and that's, that's pretty special to work with. Oh, wow. Um, so when you're working with like bass players or other um, instruments, does, does it give you like new inspiration on, on how to play um different rhythms or how to you know play percussively on the harp or like when you're working with um with nick you know do you find like 
you know, you, you kind of like that, that's that soft sliding sound that he can make and try to mm. emulate that on the harp or does that, does it influence? Oh, anything? definitely. I, I feel like every, every new musician that I meet influences me enormously and, um, and like energizes me and gives me new things to think about. Um, and I also hope that as I enter into every new collaboration, I go in without a preconceived idea of what that collaboration will be. Um, and it's that thing that the more we develop uh, our own kind of toolkit of, of things that we can do well on our instrument, or the more we develop our technique, the, the more kind of advanced our understanding of rhythm and um, our sophistication of musicality actually the more that I want to put that all to the side uh, when I enter the room because I, I feel like at the heart of a true collaboration is coming to the platform empty-handed and listening to one really deeply listening to one another in order to create something that's yours as a group it's not just your ideas being pasted on someone else or their ideas being pasted on to me and actually a group that's really taught me a lot about how to pursue that type of collaboration, utilizing deep listening is, is working with the Silk Road Ensemble, um, which is an example of a group of musicians, literally from across the globe, all over the world, um, who find ourselves on stage next to one another, often with very little rehearsal time and trying to find a common language between us to present something beautiful and, um, and that's been a, a, an incredibly powerful experience. How did you get involved with, with that project? So about six years ago, I did their Global Musicians Workshop, um, which they were doing in Indiana. At the time, it's a week-long summer camp festival with a big um, focus on collaboration. So instead of a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching with the students, we're really about creating bands, putting artists with one another and helping share tools that will allow them to create a, a, a deep and meaningful collaboration. And that was a wonderful week. I mean, it's just the, the high standard of musicians from across different genres and cultural backgrounds is, is kind of astounding. And, and as I find with most musicians, they're also lovely people. So that was my first um, engagement with Silk Road and a couple of years ago, I just started to do this. I mean, it, it's a large collective now of musicians and some of the engagements are more um, residency slanted or um, education based and some are more performative. And, and I know that the, that Silk Road Project was big, is, has been doing this for what, like almost 30 years now, I think it's been around. Yeah, yeah. Yo-Yo Ma founded the he ensemble did. and for 20 years he was the music director. Um, he stepped away from that role a, a few years ago and um, Shane Shanahan and Nick Cords are the current musical directors. We just got a really wonderful new CED um, and Yo-Yo is still involved in a lot of the decision making and um, and will still perform occasionally, but he's he's stepped away as a, as a regular. He's got a life. He's got a family. Yeah, I mean, he's he wants to be a home more. <laughs> 
he works so hard. Um, he works so hard. He does. I just love his. He's been posting videos of his playing on on Facebook Live every once in a while. Yeah. But I just like enjoy. actually, I should point out as well. Um, I know those ones. They're just wonderful. And actually, Silk Road as an organization has been posting a couple a week of these um home sessions that they then post on their website. You can watch them live or later on their website. And uh, I did one a couple of weeks ago, but. Uh, different members again across the world have been doing these short like 20 minutes or half an hour long segments of them at home kind of introducing their instrument playing some music and that's if you're unfamiliar with the ensemble that's a really lovely way of um, kind of getting to know some of the individual members. The Edinburgh International Harp Festival is an annual celebration and gathering of musical talents from the global harp community. The 40th EIHF will take place the 9th through 14th of April, 2021. And due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2020 festival was forced to go virtual. So thanks to Rachel Hare for putting so much work into making the virtual festival happen. And luckily for all of you, the workshops and concerts are still available on their website. That's harpfestival.co.uk. Edinburgh International Festival is the heart festival that I grew up going to and it's um it's really special I, I I'm also sentimentally biased um but uh it's been run by my heart teacher Isabel Muris for I think it's 40 years now um and it's just been this hub of harpists from all over Europe it's just such a shame it couldn't happen live this year but um like you mentioned Rachel Hare did an amazing job of making available and um, a lot of the classes and performances online and actually uh, that got me so excited about Somerset online as well because um, a, a couple of folks um, that I was emailing with our students were saying how they were actually so delighted when Edinburgh went online because there's no way even if it had went on as was planned and um, as a live event they couldn't have went and so this enabled them to get insight into the world of the Edinburgh Festival. And I think it's gonna be the same with the Somerset Online Heart Festival. People who perhaps wouldn't have been able to attend anyway are now gonna be able to be part of this amazing community. Oh, absolutely. I think Kathy was saying once she announced it was, you know, have classes online that people signed up from, I think, um, just all over the country who normally couldn't make it like from Alaska and all different places that were just like, Oh, I'm so happy that you can do this. And even for people who go to the festival, um, sometimes you just can't make it all the workshops that you want to go to, but now you can, Yeah, which is incredible. And then you can, you know, slow them down and watch them at your own pace and just, you know, kind of like digest things more, which I think is, is going to be really, you know, a fun, different experience too. So I'm looking forward to it. So <laughs> me too. Yeah. Um, speak- we can all be in our pajamas. That's true. I will be in my pajamas when I get to class. I promise <laughs> you can all be in the, your pajamas. That's true. As you want. Yeah. And, and, and actually like I'm, I'm thinking of, um, cause I know we're going to have the, um, the O'Carolyn marathon going on at the festival. So in honor of his 350th birthday, so I was wondering if you have a favorite O'Carolyn piece. It doesn't have to be like a popular one. It could be. Yeah. Uh, so I've learned a lot of my O'Carolyn repertoire from my aunt, Kathy Lachnan, who also has been to Somerset um, Festival. 
Uh, and she is a wealth of tunes from that Baroque period of, of harp playing in Ireland. And it is such a unique and beautiful repertoire. And I rarely get to play it. it you know, it's just, just not something that I would play often in my shows. But whenever I get together with her, we do play. And it is a delight. We often play Loftus Jones, which I love. Um, uh, I love Mr. O'Connor as well. The, the kind of double set of tunes. They're I mean, so many of his tunes are so unexpected. They, they really challenge your expectation of what's going to happen next melodically, and I love that. Um, Eleanor Plunkett is one of my favourite slow airs of all time. Yeah, maybe I'll stick with those three for okay. right now. Oh, it, it was, like, was it like three years ago that you were on stage with your aunt playing? Yeah, I it think was, so, so, very nice. likely. Yeah, that was beautiful to see the two of you play together, and she's such a delight like she's just such a wonderful person too so oh she's the best yeah and she also she plays that material with such lightness it's very common to hear the O'Carolan material I think um played in kind of this militant way hmm. um especially like tunes like the concerto uh like it starts to sound like a marching band tune and uh, and she brings such lightness and life and playfulness to the way that she plays them. And that's really informed how I interpret that material as well. Um, hopefully we will get together for that cup of tea. Where can people find you, um, your music and all? You can find me at my website, www.madegilchristmusic.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter on that website. I send out um, one, maximum two newsletters a month. And um in those, I can let you know about my harp talks. And for those of you new to harp talk, right now I'm doing it bi-monthly. And um, previously it's just been monthly. But it's a free um, online harp workshop that I started about three years ago. Um, during my travels touring, I was meeting so many harp players um, in rural areas who didn't have access to a teacher regularly. So it was just kind of, it originally just, I made it as a platform for those people to tune in and ask questions and I like the idea of us sharing ideas and um, just, you know, nuggets of heart wisdom, but it's turned into a slightly more structured um, web workshop. I always have accompanying, accompanying handouts that people can purchase, um, but you don't have to have the handouts and everybody is welcome. Um, I encourage people to be as interactive as possible. We just changed over the platform to Facebook Live recently. So if you can't watch them in real time, the next one, by the way, is Saturday, the 18th, although probably won't be out by then. Um, but you can always go back and watch them later on the Heart Talk Facebook page, which is facebook.com stroke Heart Talk. Um, yeah, other than that, all the normal places for listening. And thank you in advance if you want to listen. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to chat with me today. Um, I, I'm, I just love listening to your music and you're so inspiring. And I, I hope that there's plenty of people out there who will be able to discover your music and your teaching style and just, you know, and see how incredible you really are. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Maureen, from, from, from the east side of the river to the west side of the river. It's been so <laughs> nice to chat. Thank you, you too. You'll find links in the show notes to Maeve's website and where you can purchase her music, as well as links to the Somerset Folk Harp Festival. 
please check out Maeve's Harp Talk page on Facebook Live this Saturday, May 16th, 2020. Past episodes of Harp Talk are also available on their Facebook page. Please check out my website, moonoverthetrees.com, for more information on artists, upcoming interviews, and inspiration for your own musical and theatrical learning journey. <laughs>